Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you, and shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our study of the Torah. Uh, this Sabbath, we are in the middle of the book of Exodus, actually Exodus chapter 21. And we just completed on the last Sabbath the teaching of the Ten Commandments where God spoke from Mount Sinai, His Ten Commandments. But this portion, interestingly enough, has more compelling information in it than even the Ten Commandments. These are now the instructions that were given to Moses to write in a book to come down off the mountain. God spoke the Ten Commandments, but these are additional commandments that were given. And in fact, some Torah teachers call this portion we're in the epitome of the Torah. And I'll explain that in just a little bit as to more about what that is. A portion in Hebrew is called mishpatim, which is uh, from the word ordinances. The first verse in chapter 21 says, now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. Uh, and so we call it mishpatim. God gave additional commandments to Moses with regard to particularly about some very complex things besides the basic Ten Commandments. Uh, let me just uh, drop back for a moment. Not all of the commandments of the Torah are applicable to every person. Uh, it depends on whether you're a man or a woman. It depends on whether you're a, an adult or a child. It depends on whether you're a priest or a high priest or just one of the citizens. It, it depends on if you're a master and you have servants or you're a servant and you have a master. It, there's laws that deal with all of those elements in it. And not every law is applicable to, to every person. I don't have to worry about the commandments that were given to priests and to the high priest. Those aren't applicable to me. And whereas the Ten Commandments are applicable to all people, from here on out, the instruction of the commandments of the Lord are specifically for specific situations and specific persons. And the first one that it's going to address, and I want you to take note of this is the first one with detail that is given after the Ten Commandments are given. And as I read for you here in chapter 21, verse 2, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, 
then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife of her children, shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God and then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and the master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently." Now, before I go any further, what is this commandment about? Uh, this will get repeated in other places. And this commandment is associated with the New Testament and a very powerful teaching that Yeshua taught the Messiah. This is called the law of the bondservant. This is the person who is in service to another. And for the reason of love, he does not go out as a free man when he's released to be free. Instead, he makes a public declaration. He makes a confession uh, that is uh, observed and witnesses by others in which he says, I love my master, I love my wife and children, the master is given to me, and I, for the reason of love I will stay, and I will not go out as a free man. In the case of Yeshua, the Messiah, when he was teaching his disciples to be the bondservants of the Messiah, the public declaration we make is, I love my master, the Messiah. I love my wife and children God has given to me. I love the brethren of the master. And for the reason of love, I will not go out as a free man. I will remain to be the servant of the Messiah, to be the servant of God. That is a bondservant in the New Testament. And it comes from the bondservant laws of the Torah. For those who might argue, well, we don't have to follow these commandments anymore. I have news for you. The first commandment after the Ten Commandments, the details that are taught in the epitome of the Torah, Mishpatim, is the first one that the Messiah used to explain how his disciples were to become his bondservants. See, the fact is, is that you're in debt. You have these sins. You owe God an explanation. You're in great debt to Him. You have messed with His creation. You have violated His rules, being the Creator and being God Almighty. You're in debt to Him, and you owe Him. Well, the deal is that, like the Master, I will take you into my house uh, to excuse your debt. I will release you from your debt. You come into my house and you serve me, but you got to make a public testimony. You have to stand up and, and recognize me as being your master, and you have to love your wife and your children, and you have to love the other brethren. And if you do that, then you will come in and you'll be part of the household of God, and you won't go out as a free man as you did before, so you could violate His commandments and live your own thing and be your own God. It's a pretty simple concept. And that's what every one of us have done as believers of Yeshua. We have made a confession of faith. We have made an exchange with Him. We'll accept His salvation for the forgiveness of our sins. And now coming into the faith, we've learned how we're supposed to love one another. And in particular, 
we are instructed to love our fellow brethren of the same master, that this would be the sign that we are the bondservants of Yeshua of Messiah. Now, in this one, they used to take them and they would pierce their ear and put a little ring in it. Um, and a ear ring uh, in the ancients was a representation of an honorable and good servant. Now, it was a good term. It was a, it was a very positive thing if you had that. But, you know, servanthood to sin is not good. A servant hen to a cruel master is not a good thing, which we commonly refer to in the world as slavery. Um, the, you know, if you walked up to a police officer or a fireman or somebody who has civic responsibility of that type, and you would say he's a servant of the people, and that would be an honorable term. You wouldn't say that he's a slave. That's not... There's a world of difference between biblical servanthood and worldly slavery. And the language here sounds like a slave because that's the way in one of people want to look at it. That's their understanding. They've not learned honorably how to be a good servant. Now, that's not to say every one of them hasn't learned it. People who go in the U.S. military, they learn how to be good servants. They learn honor, and they learn responsibility, and they, are, they serve their officers uh, as though they were masters. They follow orders. They do their job. And it's considerably to be honorable service. And in fact, we honor veterans for having done that. Police officers, firemen, all those that are in public service, we consider them to be honorable a good employee at a company working for his boss is considered to be a good thing. And the laws of Torah are addressing that. They are addressing how to be good and honorable in your service uh, when you do. And by the way, I got news for you. We all serve. We all serve somebody or something. Uh, there's no true free men that are operating this world. And those who attempt to do so are usually getting themselves in big, big trouble. So let's continue on. There's some other provisions that have to do with, namely, if the master is the one that supplied it for you, that belongs to the master. Um, and uh, let, me, let me give you a modern day concept. When you're at work, they probably assign you a desk, okay? They gave you the desk. You work there for years. You work at the desk. When you decide to retire and leave there, do you get to take the desk with you, even though you worked there with it all that time? No, that belongs to the master. That belongs to it. And if the master supplies certain things to you to make your life better, those still belong to the master, even though you leave the service for it. That's the best way I can explain to you some of this stuff about where the master provides for you, that doesn't go with you. You get to go, but it doesn't go with you uh, for it. I've uh, actually had employees that I've had work for me before uh, where I got them a computer to work on and to do the work in the ministry. And then when they got ready to leave, why well, they wanted to take the computer with them. And I went, no, no, it, it, that's not your computer. Yeah, but I have all my stuff on it. Well, 
I'm sorry, the computer belongs here. You know, you're free to go, but the computer doesn't go with you just because you identify with some of the stuff. Um, and that's the best way I can explain how some of these commandments uh, play out. He's going to go through a series. He's going to kind of, I want to say, hopscotch around a little bit. Moses is going to recount different things. I want you to take note of some of these that he does. In verse um, 12, he begins to speak, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lay in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will point you a place to which he may flee. This is very interesting. If you commit murder according to the Torah, you're going to suffer the death penalty. However, if you didn't plan on killing the person, this is an opportunistic thing came up or something you did negligently or whatever the case may be, and you killed a person, then you were going to be confined to one of the cities of refuge. You couldn't go freely about the land, but you would have to be confined in an area you know, for it. Uh, today, the modern day cities of refuge are called penitentiaries. Uh, that's where you put criminals that other family members would like to kill away from those other family members, and they live there. It's not a very pleasant life. It wasn't a real pleasant life to live in a city of refuge. Uh, but that was the provision. If it's premeditated, if he planned to do it, then he's subject to the death penalty. But if, but if, he, if it wasn't, quote, first-degree uh, murder, then he's to be confined. And that's essentially what this commandment is saying. We see the same thing happening here for it. And then it goes on to, so to talk about an accidental death. Let's say you accidentally killed someone. You didn't lay in wait for him. You didn't purpose it uh, or whatsoever. It just accidentally happened. Then that is considered to be manslaughter. And that was a different punishment from murder. And today we have laws based on the Torah that do exactly the same thing. There's a world of difference between murder and manslaughter. Manslaughter, you're going to pay a penalty. You're going to be uh, judged and so forth. But um, uh, you're not going to be treated as a murderer, even though a man was killed. Many years ago, I had a, a business colleague, a friend of mine, and this is while we were in Colorado. And in Colorado on the weekends, why people and families would love to get their camper and they would go to the lakes and high mountain reservoirs and they go fishing and camping and having a good time. Well, this friend of mine, he's got his family, he's pulling his camper and he's planning on going to one of these. Well, it's a kind of a two lane road uh, and curves and so forth up into the mountains. Well, there's a fella in front of them who was going to the same place and he was dragging his boat behind his vehicle. But his, the tire on his boat trailer on the left side went flat. So he pulled off onto the shoulder of the road as best he could and he's out changing the tire on this trailer and his body is physically in the lane, not on the shoulder of the road, but in the lane. And my friend comes driving along, doesn't see him, and suddenly 
impacts him because he was going through the lane and he didn't pull over in the middle avoid him, accidentally hit him. Of course, as you can imagine, it killed him immediately. And he was distraught, you know, and there was discussions going on with the district attorney about how he might be charged with manslaughter and it was an accident and the family of the deceased was heartbroken and, and very angry and and he, he came to me because he knew I was a spiritual man and he um, uh, wanted to sit down and talk with me about it. And it, the question that he posed to me, he said, according to God's laws, where do I stand? And I said, according to God's laws, you are guilty of accidentally killing someone. And I said, the question at this point is, what will the penalty be? You're not denying that. You're just trying to figure out what do we do from here on out. To a certain extent, uh, the family of the man that died is entitled to something from you. And I said, do you have automobile insurance? Yes. I said, there is a coverage in your automobile insurance that will do some financial stuff for the victim's family uh, for it. But in your heart, you're going to be constantly dealing with and you need to take refuge in the Lord. You, you didn't mean to, but it happened. And, um, you know, you're going to have to emotionally deal with all that's going on. Part of the commandments of the Torah is not only to deal with the specific incident, but is to deal with the aftermath of the incident. And in this particular case of my friend, I said, um, you do realize that you've incentivized that family to want to kill you. And God, by the way, recognizes their emotions about that. That's the reason why God set up the city of, ref of refuge. It's so that uh, the person that wants to kill you is prohibited from doing so. And there's safety for them and safety for you. And I said, and you need to, in your heart and soul, you need to go before the Lord and you need to take refuge in him and let him be the balm that you're going to need for the sorrow that you're going to experience. Where do all those principles come from? The Torah. The Torah, Moses and the Lord, they know about life experiences and things that happen. Bad things that happen to good people. And he has a plan and a way to address them and to deal with them. In the faith... Um, it's important for us to understand those, to counsel with others, to assist those that have suffered loss, to assist those that uh, are in grievous remorse, um, you know, from such things. Now, it goes on to give some additional commandments. Verse 15, he who strikes his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. Oh, that's interesting. Wow, I guess that, that commandment about honor your father and your mother has some real consequences to it. Well, as a matter of fact, it does. And when God gave it in the, in the Ten Commandments, he said, so that your days may be prolonged. Uh, so you'll live a long life, honor your father and your mother. But here it now says, one of the things that will shorten your life is if you strike your father and your mother. You strike your father and mother, you deserve to die. And by the way, that's God's judgment on a person. 
the parents probably would say, no, 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 I don't, I don't want my child to, to die, even though they struck me, even though they you know, did harm to me. But this is God's judgment on the thing. And this is one of the things that marks his righteousness that goes with his justice, that it would be the righteous thing. There's absolutely no excuse. There's no adequate explanation for a child to strike his parents. I don't care how grievous bad it is. He goes one step further on this, and he says that if, he, if they curse parents, they're worthy of death as well. You don't even have to strike them. Just curse them. You're worthy of death. Why? Why would God make that particular issue so powerful and so uh, severe? Is it because that the parents are your primary teachers of your life for your character and who you are? You probably heard the expression before, you know, that a son is uh, it's like an acorn doesn't fall far from the tree and what one of, or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. What we talk about is the powerful influence parents have upon children that it carries into their life. Uh, There's certain things that get passed down. If that child now turns against the thing, he's literally turning against himself. He's literally destroying his own life, whether you realize this or not. The heritage we get from our, our parents before, you don't want to destroy that. You want to protect that. That's your life. But when you take issue with it, you might as well be committing spiritual suicide to yourself. And a lot of people don't recognize how powerful that is and so forth. Why does the Bible say that when you die, you return to your fathers? It's because spiritually there is a huge connection between your fathers, your earthly fathers, and you. And on up the line. I am a product, to a certain extent, of my father, my grandfathers, my great-grandfathers. I'm a product of all of them. And I've, now that I've lived some years, I can see certain things about me that I remember were certain traits that were of my father and my grandparents. And, um, and I'm privileged to uh, see that, to be able to understand that. And I've passed that to my son, and he will pass it to his son. And so if, if you break that connection and you curse against that, you're cursing against your own life. This is a very powerful thing. God does not see you as an individual like you think he does. He sees you from generation to generation to generation. And the reason why you want that, you want God to do that, is you see he started with Abraham, and he said to Abraham, I'm going to do something special with you and your descendants. I'm going to make a promise to you, Abraham, to bless you, and it's going to extend all the way to your descendants. By the way, are you familiar with that a curse can carry to three and four generations? Think about that for a moment. A spiritual curse on a person can carry all the way to three and four generations. A blessing can carry to a thousand generations. That's how powerful those things are. And when you disturb those things and you interfere with those things, 
uh, you are actually trying to do harm to your own life, whether you realize it or not. So the Lord is very direct and very dramatic here about this commandment. Uh, let me take you to just one other thing that's on the side here, since we were talking about bond servants and loving the brethren. Every one of us, because of our father Abraham, we have this blessing that says, God says, anyone who blesses you, I will bless them. Anyone who curses you, I will curse them. Now, that applies even when brethren decide to act that way with other brethren. If you take a brother in the faith and you bless him, then you will have a blessing too. And that was the reason why the Messiah instituted the thing. I want you to have love for one another. Love the brethren so that we can get all the blessings working. The other result is that you get into an argument with one of your spiritual brothers and you curse them. Well, you're hurting yourself. You're, you're, you're putting curses on yourself and because of what you've done against your own brother. For those of us who are looking for unity in the faith, you know, that we love one another, we take care of one another, we care for one another, we should remember these basic principles. God does, sees us in a multi-generational point of view. He sees us as all being descendants of Abraham. He's made certain promises to Abraham that are extended to us. And there are certain provisions of the rules of God's house that apply to us uh, every bit as much. And so he's specifically specifying here, don't strike your father and mother. Don't curse them. There's different ways to deal with the problems than that. Because that part of the, the connection of how we exist in the world needs to be maintained spiritually. Those spiritual principles have to be maintained because if you step out from under that, you're walking out from under the house of God and now you're subject to all manner of things and not under his protection. He goes uh, a little bit further here. Let's look at verse 16. And he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. This verse uh, here in the United States really came to prominence if you'll remember, uh, about the Lindbergh baby that was kidnapped. Lindbergh was the guy who flew across the Atlantic Ocean, solo flight. And he was a very famous uh, fellow here for, um, in the American um, culture. And his child was kidnapped from his home. And uh, there, the, this verse came to prominence about that in the United States, kidnapping is worthy of death. And so there have been people who have been executed because of kidnapping. Kidnapping is a very serious offense um, at the weight of murder and killing someone uh, for it. Uh, verse 18, this is interesting. And if a man has a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with, uh, with his fist, he does not die but remains in bed. If he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take him, uh, take care of him until he's completely healed. Um, if a man strikes a male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. 
and that could include suffering vengeance. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. If you get into a conflict and the guy recovers from it and you didn't use any kind of weapon, in other words, you shoved him and you threw him and you punched him and so forth, if he recovers, then all you're responsible for to him is to pay for his care while he recovers. Um, uh, the, you you don't you don't you don't get other penalties from God uh, from it, but the moment that you have a weapon, that is when you're going to be in trouble and violate a much greater law. Here in the United States, um, they have a different level degree of law of law. Let's say that a man walks into a bank and he hands the teller a note and he says, "I'm here to rob the bank. Please give me the money." Well, if he, if he does that, um, then he's guilty of robbing the bank. However, if he comes into the bank, hands a note over, and points a gun at somebody, and is threatening somebody with a weapon, that's called armed robbery. And that's a completely different law and a completely different penalty. Well, those provisions, those same kinds of distinctions in breaking the law are brought forth by the Torah. Where do you think we got the ideas from? We got them from the Torah. And I would remind you that the people who came and helped establish this country and other countries before, uh, where we follow the principles of uh, the rule of law, they all originate from this. Not too long ago in the United States, there was a movement on the part of liberals to remove any symbols of the Ten Commandments from courtrooms the truth of the matter is that all of our laws originate from the Ten Commandments, the rule of law. And for them doing that, they're denying it for religious reasons. Actually, what they're doing is they're denying the very laws of our land. And they're becoming lawless instead of understanding it. And because the Christian world doesn't really understand the value of the Torah, and they don't hold to the Torah and believe in the principles of the Torah, uh, there's no reason for them to stand up and fight against those kinds of liberal objections. They think they have faith and they have Yeshua, but they don't, they don't need the other stuff. Faith in Yeshua is based on these things. Uh, you don't really have the Yeshua that we serve, you know, the Messiah King. He follows these. His judgments in the future will be based on these things. Uh, that's how the real world works with the real God, um, that these are the provisions and how things happen. But I want to get you now to, and I'm sure you're going to be familiar with this, we're going to go to um, verse 23. But if there is further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, brain burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go on free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male and female servant, he shall let them go for on account of his tooth. Wait a minute, time till, wait a, boy, we got a lot of stuff we got to cover here. So a guy comes up to you, smacks you in the mouth, and breaks your tooth off. 
So does that mean that you get to go and smack him in the mouth and knock his tooth out? Well, you could if you were in the midst of a fight, you know. However, that wouldn't be the punishment. Let's say that the fight stops, you've been injured, and he's caught. What is the penalty that he has to, that he has to pay? It comes down to the phrase, eye for eye. Eye for eye is the key phrase here. It's value for value. Your eye sees a certain value, and you need to be refer, referring, uh, getting back that same value. In the case of, this is a very common thing, in the case of that you're out on the street, and some guy drives up in his car, and he hits your car, and he bends your fender. Now, it was a perfectly good fender before, but now he's damaged the fender. So what is the appropriate thing that needs to be done here? What's the eye for eye? Well, that fender needs to be repaired to look like it did before. That's what happens. You saw the fender this way, and when we're done, we need to see the fender the same way. Now, there's a lot of things in this world that are very subjective in that regard. So it comes down to you got to come to some kind of agreement. Uh, and thus, this is the reason why we have attorneys who sue for damages. The idea is to receive financial compensation that will go along with the damages that had been done. Uh, whether it be the loss of a life, let's say that a, a widow has lost her husband uh, due to the harm done by another person or whatever, she can sue for damages and receive back compensation that is reflective of life. And by the way, insurance companies have all of this stuff already worked out with the courts based on your age, based on your profession, based on your intellect, what is the value of your life that you can receive back or your heirs can receive back based on the value of your life. It's all based on these principles, all based on it. Uh, some think that they can use this for vengeance. Oh, you are wrong. You are definitely wrong. God does not tell you that you use his laws for the basis of vengeance. Instead, he says, vengeance is mine. I will get the vengeance part. You will receive the, the payment, uh, and you will receive the restitution. But uh, the vengeance belongs to me. So anybody who gets injured and says, well, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to injure this person. You're way over the line. That's not what this law is about. That's not what it's teaching is about at all. But it does now go from, uh, you know, things where there would be direct things that would go on between us. And we get it down into some other laws that have to do with you never meant to do anything. You never meant to do any harm whatsoever. For example, verse 33, if a man opens a pit or digs a pit, does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the, of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to the owner, and the dead animal shall become his. Um, the, the, we have the same issues about if somebody goes out and totals your car. Uh, you didn't mean to. That was an accident. You go out and you dig a pit, and you're intending to use it for something else, and somebody falls in it. You know, they walk along, and they stumble, and they fall in the pit. You're going to pay for their injuries. You're the one who set that up to happen. 
Another version of this is that if you build a set of steps up onto the roof of your house that will permit people to get up on the roof of your house, if you don't build a parapet, a safety rail about it, and somebody falls off and is injured, you're liable for their injuries. You're the one that made it possible for them to go up there and to do that possible harm. This is the same principles that are at work when somebody goes and does something and other people take advantage of that thing that you set up. You open the door for this to take place and other people came in and, and then did it. Well, then you're liable for that. Well, I didn't tell them to do that. Yeah, but you made it possible for it to happen. It wasn't possible before you took an action that would make it, but well, I never intended to do that. I know you didn't intend to do it, but why didn't you think about the other fellow that might walk along? Why didn't you put a safety rail up or a barrier? Why were you negligent in the work that you were doing? And by the way, in, in construction and so forth, this is a major issue. That's the reason why guys on construction sites are told you must wear a helmet. You have to wear safety glasses. You have to use gloves. You have to isolate yourself from dangerous electricity. If you're going to have that stuff, then you have to be responsible uh, for it and not allow someone to get hurt, you know, by it, uh, who stumbles along. That's the reason why there's a lot of ordinances that if you put a swimming pool in your, in your backyard, you better have a fence around it. So in case somebody doesn't want to come along, jump in your swimming pool, take advantage of it, and drown. Um, and in fact, I've even seen where they have public pools. And if, you'll know, if you have a public swimming pool, did you know that the fence that goes around it, you have to be able to see through the fence. It has to be a chain link fence. It has to be a fence that if someone's in danger in the pool, they can cry out and somebody outside the pool can see they're in danger and call for help. But if you, it's all blocked in and it's wood, nobody can see, that's considered part of the level of, did you safely set this thing up or are you negligent? These principles all come from the Torah. And so that, based on this, you and I can make reasonable judgments and that you and I can plan on how to live you know, in a safe way, in a safe community, with other people taking into account your safety, you taking into account their safety you know, for those kinds of things. Uh, I know there's a law you know, about you don't get to go speeding through residential sections of, of, of the town. Well, why, why, why do we have that law? Why do we set that Because people that do that, Little kids playing out in the yard, sometimes they go chase the ball. And if somebody's speeding up and down the street and doesn't have sufficient time to stop, tragedy happens. By the way, I had a friend who did that years ago. He was a young man. He was driving the car too fast down a residential street. And a kid's ball went out of his yard into the street. The kid ran out to get the ball. And it couldn't stop. And he, he was operating his vehicle and not thinking about what could be the consequences of what would be happening in that, in that area. Now, if you're out on the highway, it's a little bit different situation. 
the burden now goes upon the pedestrian. You know, don't walk out into the highway because now you're putting a driver who's driving fast enough that he can't possibly stop. So the burden falls on the pedestrian and the highway, but the burden is on the driver in the residential area. Where do we get this wisdom to know these differences? In the rules about negligence and safety that come from the Torah. This is the basis for them. And quite honestly, this is why governments have established these things. Now, we're going to go a little bit further, and I'm going to show you where the government doesn't follow what the Torah says. So we're going to be down to now uh, chapter uh, 22. It says there, verse 1, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. He has to pay a penalty. You took one oxen, and you're going to pay him back five of them. You took one sheep, you're going to pay back four. Now, wait a minute. Why, why weren't the number of animals the same? If it said five oxen, why isn't it five sheep? Or four sheep and four oxen. What, what's, what's the difference there? Oxen in those days was part of the ability of how a family lived. The oxen is what was used to pull the plow. They carry big loads. In other words, the oxen wasn't just there to eat grass and then eventually eat. It was used as part of the um, equipment, you know, for them to live. Same thing with a horse, same thing with a camel. Those animals that are used as animals of burden that assist the people, uh, they have a, a higher cost. And as a result, there was a higher restitution cost uh, associated with them. Here in the Western United States, uh, the, the use of a horse, riding a horse, transportation from place to place, was so powerful that if you were caught stealing a horse, they could kill you. It was a death penalty because you were literally taking the life away from the other person who needed that horse uh, for them to be able to live. And when it becomes at that level, when it becomes associated directly with life, the penalty goes up and the Torah sets the principle or the precedent uh, for us. Very soon, we're going to come to a Torah portion called um, Shoftim, which is called Judges. And some of the initial words in that particular teaching, and I just want to point them out as they tie in here, is justice, justice, you shall pursue. And the second word justice doesn't mean the same thing as the first word justice. In other words, it's not an emphatic superlative of the, of the word justice. It's really describing another concept. And what it's saying is that when you go to seek justice, you have to do it in a just way. There has to be due process. The whole principle of due process in our legal system um, is based on justice, justice you shall pursue. Well, we see the same thing here. If a person steals another person's property, their property should be returned to them. That's the proper justice, okay? So why, aren't, why don't we follow those provisions? Right now, some guy goes out and he steals your car. And he sells it. And it's gone. Nobody knows where it's at. They catch him. 
the guy that sold your car, the Ketchum, does he have to give you five cars back? According to Torah, should. According to Torah, he owes you five cars. Do our laws call for that? No. Well, you see, practical side, the guy that stole the car, he, he couldn't afford a car himself, so why in the world uh, would he ever pay back five cars? No, the idea is to put a judgment on him, and he's going to spend the rest of his life paying back. That's justice. You stole from him, you're going to pay the price. We don't follow those principles anymore. And as a result, we have less than satisfying result for our justice system. If you're the victim of a crime, about the only thing that you get to do is maybe make a victim statement at the guy's trial in front of the judge uh, before he uh, announces penalty on, on the perpetrator. That's about as much as you get. Some try to seek judgments and sue for things. Um, that's, that's part of the process, but it, it's less than satisfying. The fact of the matter is victims of crime in this country and throughout the world do not receive the restitution that, they, uh, that the law requires. And, by the way, men's laws don't specify that you have to do restitution. And if you do, it's minor as compared to what the restitution requirement is from the Torah. Uh, let's go here and uh, let's look at another version of this. Verse 14. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. I had friends of mine, uh, uh, Messianic brethren, he borrowed his neighbor's barbecue, gas barbecue. So he hauled it over and put it on his patio, and he's out there cooking his chicken or whatever it was he was cooking, and there's a, there's a cracked line in the hose from the gas from the tank up into the grill. And that gas leaks, and it catches on fire. And all of a sudden, the whole barbecue grill is just on fire. I mean, the gas is coming out of the bottle, and it's just, I mean, just cooking the whole barbecue grill. Police are called, fire departments called, they're in there spraying, putting it out. Almost threatens the house because it was sitting on the patio with a roof above it, but the house doesn't catch on fire. But my goodness, it's an emergency and everything. I mean, it's scary. You know, this. if you ever see one of these propane bottles get on fire, it's, it's scary. The first thought you have is this thing is about to explode. So he says to me, he says, uh, yeah, the neighbor wants to be paid back. The neighbor wants uh, me to pay for his grill. And I said, okay, let's follow the provisions of the Torah. Was the neighbor present when you were using the grill? Was he invited to come over and eat with you guys? No, no, he wasn't there. He, he was at his house. So you borrowed it from him, and it was under your complete control, right? Yeah. I said, you have to pay for it. You borrowed it from him. The owner is not present. Therefore, you owe him. If the owner is present, it's his responsibility, not yours. Well, he, he had defective equipment. He had a little cracks in his hose. Well, before you used it, you should have inspected it to make sure it's ready to go. 
You didn't, did you? You just assumed it was. Well, when you assumed, you assumed the responsibility for it. That's the way the Torah sees it. So he had to buy this guy a new grill because he burned up his grill. And then I've seen the exact opposite. And you can't believe how the brother was so happy. You, you mean just because the owner was there present? I, you know, it was a tool that was broke. His, um, his neighbor loaned him a tool, power tool. Well, in the course of working on it, the power tool blew up and broke and, and doesn't work anymore. I said, was the owner present with you? Yes. Yes, he was. You don't owe him a thing. It was his tool. He, it was his, under his responsibility. It's who is responsible is the one who pays and for it. And by the way, these, this is God's judgment system. There, you know for a fact that when people get themselves in trouble, they get themselves in a difficult situation, the first instinct is to blame someone else. Okay? God doesn't play the blame game. God's judgment is he goes in and he says, who's responsible for this thing? Who opened the door? Who, who made it possible? Who, whose equipment is it? You know, who's the responsible party at this event? And that's the one that the Lord will hold to account. By the way, there's a lot of things that we assume to do, and we assume responsibility along with it. And if something goes wrong, it's our responsibility. We are the responsible one, you know, for it. You borrow your neighbor's car. You go wreck it. You're responsible. You're the one that did it, not your neighbor. All right, let's go down a little bit further. Now we're going to shift into some of the more spiritual kinds of things that take place. Verse 18, you should not allow a sorceress to live. And he gets into the things that could corrupt people spiritually. And he says there's rules about those kinds of things. Verse 22, I love this one. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you afflict him at all. And if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry and my anger will be kindled and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. What you do to others will be done to you. Now, some people call it poetic justice. God calls it true justice. As you measured it out, it will be measured to you. If you showed kindness, kindness will be shown to you. If you were harmful and spiteful, you will suffer the same consequences. One of the things that we, as a believer, you're going to go through your life, and not every relationship that you have is going to work out. And it's, some of them are going to end tragically with great disappointment and so forth. One of the things that you need to remember is that when you're recounting the negative things that happened to you and you're coming to terms with how you deal with it, and maybe some of these things make you angry and frustrated and so forth, 
because we know the Lord and we know the Lord's justice system, one of the things that God has said to us as bond servants, as servants of him, that when someone does harm to you and you're a servant of mine, the master has something to say about it. A bondservant does not seek his own justice. A bondservant gets his justice from his master. Um, we don't have to extract payment from those who offend us. We just turn them over to our master. The master is the one pledged to take care of me and meet all my needs. If I need something, he'll take care of me. I said, I'll let my master deal with who offended me. Um, that is an incredible provision that we have um, being in a part of the house of God. But sadly, many people don't take advantage of it. They try to get their own justice on their own. A free man has to get his justice from other men. But a servant always gets his justice from his master. If you're the servant of God, your justice comes from him. It doesn't come from other men that you get. And uh, that, that's one of the provisions of the Torah. Because if you have to deal with from man to man, and so this gets very difficult. This gets messy. It's, it ties you up. By the way, if, there's two places you don't want to go in your lifetime. One of them is into a hospital with you being a patient. The other is going into a courtroom. These are both bad places. Good things don't happen in these places, you know, to you. But if you can turn your life over to the Lord and he's your healer, it's much better. If you can turn your life over to the Lord and let him get the justice that you deserve, you're going to be a lot better off. You'll be at peace. You'll be able to live your life. And these things won't ultimately hurt you. Now, there's a whole bunch more of individual commandments in this section. Um, <clears throat> a whole series of things about don't vex a stranger and, and things like that in, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 23. But I want to take you down to, uh, in my final moments here, I want to take you down to some verses in chapter 23, beginning at verse, um, uh, let's see, verse 20. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way, to bring you into the place where I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you, and he'll bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. Everybody in this world is going to have problems with those guys called the Ites. Now, we all have these different people we have to run into, and they're all a version of the Ites, Jebusites, Amorites, blah, you know, you gotta, everybody's got them. But if you understand that in the course of your life, the angel of the Lord, and by the way, who in the world is that? Oh, that would be Yeshua. That would be the Messiah. He's the one that has God's name in him. He's the one that has the power. He's the one that's pledged to you. 
He's the one committed to you. He's the one that's in covenant with you to provide for you, to protect you, to be in his house. If you'll hold to that, hold to him, let the angel of the Lord do the things that are necessary to be done for you to get through this life correctly. That was the word that was put after they gave the Torah, after he gave these individual teachings, Moses then said, hey, we're going into the land with these commandments. Let the angel of the Lord help you as you go in and so forth. We're all on a journey to the promised land, to the messianic kingdom. We need to learn how to follow the angel of the Lord and listen to what he says. Listen to his instructions. Follow these instructions. By the way, the instructions, the commandments of the angel of the Lord are just the same ones I just gave you. Those same commandments. They're not new ones. They're not different ones. They're the same ones that we've been reviewing here in this. All right, that's our portion for this Sabbath. I hope you enjoyed it. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you, and shalom.